The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And there is a new documentary on the Reels channel that debuted over the weekend. It's called America's Deadliest Rock Concert, The Guest List. It's the story of the infamous and tragic Great White Concert Fire at the Station Nightclub in West Warwick, Rhode Island, on the night of February 20th, 2003, pretty much 19 years ago, uh, just a few days ago, 19 years ago to the day. Uh, Great White's onstage pyro ignited a fast-moving blaze that killed 100 people and injured over 200 more, and those people died very, very quickly. Uh, This new documentary is told through the eyes of the survivors and the victims' families and recounts the events from the night of the tragic fire uh, to the criminal case and trial, the civil lawsuit that followed. Uh, When you watch it, you'll discover it's also a story of hope, healing, and forgiveness as you see what people have overcome in the aftermath of this horrific tragedy. Uh, Great White frontman Jack Russell is featured in the documentary, and you'll hear why his participation was a must for filmmaker David Bellino. Uh, David is here today. Uh, His producing partner and the attorney who litigated the civil suit on behalf of the victims, fire members, and the survivors, John Berlick, wrote the book on which the documentary is partially based, Killer Show, the station nightclub fire, America's deadliest rock concert. John is also with us. And returning, of course, is Twisted Sister frontman Dee Snyder, one of the greatest rock and roll singers of all time. Uh, He's been a tireless advocate for the survivors and victims' families and was instrumental in bringing together his fellow musicians for a benefit concert in 2008 for the victims of the station fire uh, tragedy. And that was broadcast on VH1 at the time. And my other guest, Mike Riccardi, is also returning to talk as Jericho. He was at the concert that night. He survived uh, while his best friend, Jim, Jim Gahan, uh, did not survive. Uh, their story is featured prominently in the documentary, and Mike speaks about that again today. So today on Talk is Jericho, I've got them all together, David Bellino, John Berlick, Dee Snyder, and Mike Riccardi, to tell us all about the night, the making of the documentary, the importance of telling this story and remembering the survivors and the victims and all the families impacted by this unbelievable tragedy uh the personal ties they each have to the story how they've all found hope and in mike's case some healing uh through this project again the new documentary is called america's deadliest concert the guest list you can see an encore airing this sunday february 27th at 3 p.m eastern on reels or you can go to reels.com for information on how you can watch it on demand Let's take a deeper dive into that fateful night, the documentary, and what it took to make it with David Bellino, John Berlick, Dee Snyder, and Mike Riccardi, the station nightclub fire, America's deadliest rock concert. 
here discussing it now on Talk is Jericho. So one of the worst tragedies in American history and rock and roll history, uh, of course, is, is the Station Nightclub Fire. An amazing documentary that was just made. We've got a, a great group of guys here. Uh, David Bellino, who directed it. John Berlick, I read your book, Killer Show, a few years ago. Mike Riccardi, who actually survived the fire. And then Dee Snyder, as he has written himself down. One of the greatest <laughs> rock and roll frontmen of all time. I guess, Dee, why are you so committed to this documentary and to this tragedy, I guess we would say? Well, you know, this goes back to day one with the event itself hit me like a slight hit so many of us like a sledgehammer but for me having toured with gray white having played the station nightclub so i had played with a project called the smfs at the station nightclub and i realized that the people who came to see me that night were probably the very same music fans who went to see gray white and died in the fire or were injured in the fire that was the first level that's a one year later article in rolling stone magazine about just the, the aftermath and how no one had come forward to help. The government had not come forward to help. The music community had not come forward to help. These people were blue-collar blue collar Joes and Janes. A lot didn't have medical insurance. And they were losing, they lost their livelihoods. They lost their homes. It, it, was, it was just the, the magnitude of it was overwhelming to me. And at that point, I tried to get something going and just ran into a bunch of closed doors. Closed doors. But so, so it is just eating at me that this is going on, continuing year after year, the suffering, literal suffering, talking to the station nightclub people, hearing about them having pancake breakfast and spaghetti dinners to raise money for the victims and the survivors, and then trying to figure out who gets the proceeds from a spaghetti dinner when you've got hundreds of people crying out. Again, I, I I'm it's breaking me up now. And it's it's in the past, that part of it's in the past, so it just hit me hard. Mike, I mean, you survived the the fire. You've been on Talk Is Jericho before, and we'll get into all of this. But since we're talking about this, do you feel that the victims that even I mean, you're a victim as well, got the attention that you should have gotten from this, if that's even the right word? So I was 19 when this happened. So you're, you're naive to a lot of things that go on behind the scenes politically and, you know, in, in mainstream media. I didn't feel it did. And, you know, D was, you know, I first met you at the 2008 Benefit concert in Rhode Island. You know, we had a great group of artists that came forward that night and stepped up. D and Twisted Sister. Tesla's been great. Aaron Lewis was there that night. Gretchen Wilson. But I kind of shared the same sentiment that D did. It's like a, a lot of these big mainstream artists almost kind of went silent. And I was, I was a little shocked by that because yeah, it was a, I guess you might want to call it a, a forgotten brand of rock and roll or something that was past his prime, but these were still hardworking men, women, and children that lost a lot that night. And I think there could have been a lot that should have been done. I say this in the documentary. If it was you two playing the night, yeah, of, right. there would have been the outpouring. Everyone yep. would have come to the benefit. It would have been worldwide. It would have been the Pope would have introduced them because it wasn't sexy. It wasn't pretty. It was hair metal. Let me tell you, man, when Troy Lucetta and I got back into it, and Troy, it got me to come and I started making those calls to have, and I'm not saying I never spoke to the artists. Contrary to popular belief, I don't have their numbers, but 
the training camp turning me down. When they were rehearsing in Hartford, Connecticut, an hour away, the night we were doing the show, they said we don't. They don't. Bruce doesn't play with other other bands. I said, right. This goes beyond. We will leave. We'll see the audience. Bon Jovi organization. Bon Jovi doesn't play with hair bands. Now, John didn't say this. Rich didn't say this. This is management. Okay, don't play with hair bands. And then Aerosmith. I went to the mat for Aerosmith. Didn't speak to Joe. I didn't speak to Stephen. And I firmly believe if they, if they had heard about this, they would have been there because that's the kind of people they are. But their management, who they're no longer with, by the way, uh, they um, they ran me ragged trying to get Aerosmith, who lived in the nearby town. They had houses in the nearby town. Hmm. Nobody would come right. play. It was only not nobody, but none of those big the big dogs would do it. So, David, is this one of the reasons why you wanted to to make this documentary to put a little bit more of a focus on it? Because once again, it, it's take take the great white and the not sexy music out of it. This is a hundred people who died in a tragic nightclub fire. Now, like Dee said, if it's you two, or if it's great white, or if it's just a rave, or whatever it is, uh, it's a terrible, terrible tragedy. Is this one of the reasons why you decided to kind of delve into this? Uh, and I'll ask John the same question, but Dave, let us know your thoughts. There's, there's several reasons. I think the, the primary reasons are I'm, I'm a music lover of this particular genre. I started in directing music videos back in the day, and um, I'm from Rhode Island. So those two things melding together were really interesting. When I moved back to Rhode Island, I had a one-year-old and a three-year-old little girl, and I woke up and I looked at the news that morning and I'm like, someday I have to do this. I mean, the station was 15 minutes down the road. Of course I would have been there. Something, David, one-year-old, three-year-old, one of the facts that rocked my world, 65 kids lost one or both parents. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. As a father of four, father of two, I, I just like, again, chills. I'm not going, this is mm-hmm. wrong. That stuck with me. I'm like, cause I think the only reason I didn't go is because it wasn't promoted well. I think Jack went on HJY, like, I don't know, you know, for five minutes the night before or something, but whatever, it's not about me. But, you know, there's a lot to this, but I I think the answer to your question in general is that a small, especially Rhode Island, of all states, right, the smallest town and the smallest state and the smallest, you know, does anyone care? And without that big news cycle for the first week or so, So when I created this film, one of the motivations was that these stories are so important. Like when you meet these people on the screen on Sunday and you understand who they are, uh, the survivors, but the families. And um, it was a very tough, I don't want to say tough sell because sell is not the word, but if we didn't package this story in something bigger, you know, with D and music as, as a whole and, Jack Russell, great white nominee, you know, Grammy back in 89. If, if the story wasn't packaged in something that was bigger and broader than just Rhode Island, mm-hmm. it would wind up as a little Rhode Island story that would sit on the shelf, which is, I think, a lot of what's been happening over the years. So it was a little difficult to make people understand that to get the story out of these people, Mike and Sandy, who were in the tattoo parlor and Jimmy, you know, best friend of Mike, to get their stories out to the world, it had to be done in a certain way. Otherwise, it's a home movie mm-hmm. on local NBC in Rhode Island, and right. that wasn't what I wanted to do. 
John, you, and that's one great point too. Like D said, it's the band and also the fact that it happened in Rhode Island. If this would have happened in LA or New York, it would be a completely different story as well. John, I read Killer uh, Killer Show, gosh, five, six, seven years ago. You did a lot of research uh, about this tragedy. And what kind of attracted you to it? Because like I said, you your book is predating this documentary by years. Well, as David said, this was a tragedy of unprecedented scale in Rhode Island. And having worked on the civil case for seven years, as that was wrapping up, I got the feeling that uh, this will sound cocky, but I know more details about this tragedy than maybe anybody at this moment in time. And if it doesn't get memorialized in a book that has broader appeal, that has readability like a narrative nonfiction, uh, it'll get lost to memory. So I set about and spent three years in researching and writing uh, this and hopefully packaging it in a way that's approachable wherever you are in the spectrum, whether you're a hard rock fan or whether you appreciate the legal analysis and you're interested in the criminal and the civil outcomes or just the human stories as David has embraced so well in his film. You know, we worked in kind of a complementary mode here in that David looked to me and my book for factual and legal grounding. And I just looked to him to, to use the magic of sound and sight to tell a story and tell a human interest story and tell a riveting story, different from the book, but grounded in the facts of the book. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Well, let's kind of go into to what went down that night and kind of delve into some of the reasons why, because it is uh, so many things that happened that if one thing hadn't happened, this tragedy might not have taken place. It was a real uh, chain reaction of everything. But, Mike, let's talk a little bit about your story, because um, and we've yep. known each other for years. But your story, we talk about this. You guys talk about this in the documentary. You went to the show with your friend after having Jack on your radio show earlier in the day and the movie, the documentary is called the guest mm-hmm. list and you were put on the guest list uh, yeah. uh, and kind of, cause you made it out of the fire and, and, and your friend did not. Yeah. So we had a, uh, again, I remember a couple months prior to that, you know, we're just getting our, our show, you know, Jim and Mikey's power hour. We called it two decades too late, you know, up on the air in our little college campus. And a few months prior to that, Jack was actually on a solo tour and he stopped at club liquid in, in Lemonster mass in, that's when we started getting the idea that, you know, some of these guys were pretty approachable. We could get an interview with them and things of that nature. So we started doing that, started reaching out to, you know, various management, um, press people, et cetera. And you got to understand too, like this is before social media, this is before smartphones. So we're doing the good old fashioned, you know, phone calls, you know, faxes, things like that. So yeah, we, we scored an interview with Jack Russell that night about six fifteen, six thirty. you know, went off for a couple hours, grabbed something to eat, you know, did a few things. And, you know, Jack had said when we were wrapping up, he's like, hey, I want to see you guys back here tonight, get you on the guest list. Um, And then he had actually said, 
you know, we want you to come back on Sunday. They were supposed to be at the Webster Theater in Hartford the following Sunday, I believe. Hmm. And Jack wanted us to come interview Jack, Mark, and the rest of the gang. So, you know, we were just, we're on cloud nine here and that and put us on the guest list and, and we were sold. I mean, either way, we were, we were going to that show that night. We knew that. So, you know, Jim was pretty clever, like, you know, hey, where, where can we buy some tickets in case it sells out? You know, trying to weasel our way in for free. We're college students. We're broke. <laughs> and Jack's like, oh, don't worry. No, we got you on the guest list. And we want to see you back later on tonight. So, I mean, that it was just it was a cloud nine day for both of us. So kind of like what, John, you can you can what kind of led up to this happening? Because obviously and people know the story. If they don't, Great White Lights off some pyro which in a, such a small club and, and Dia want to ask your opinion on that as well. It's so crazy to even think that you would do that. But prior to the great white fire, our band Fozzie used to have a, a, a fire thing on the end of a guitar that you would shoot up into the air, like in small, small rooms. Why was that so fatal on that night in that club, John? It was a perfect storm of mistakes, right. frankly. And as you mentioned before, any one person doing the right thing probably would have avoided it. But as it was, there was plenty of blame to go around. Whether it's Great White and Jack making the decision to set off illegal pyrotechnics in this small club without a permit, without a licensed pyrotechnician, it never would have been given a permit had they sought one. Uh, in a club that the owners had put flammable soundproofing up on the walls, which was obviously a, a violation of the fire code, to the local fire inspector who inspected the club three years running and allowed that flammable material. And we're not talking about a subtle amount of it. We're talking about covering in the entire west end of the club. And not to remain on the flammable. He demonstrates in the John demonstrates in the documentary, terrifyingly flammable. Yes. It melts and it drops, it drips fire. Right. It's horrifying. It produced like a, a flaming napalm that was simply unsurvivable. If you hadn't made it out of the club in 90 seconds, in a minute and a half, you stood very little chance of making your escape. It, uh, so you've got yeah. blame on those people, blame on the part of the, the fire inspector. You've got product manufacturers who didn't properly label their products with warnings. You know, you mentioned before that had this been a concert involving U2 or, or Aerosmith or somebody, not only would it have garnered attention within the nation and the industry, but from a legal standpoint, it would have been entirely different. We wouldn't have spent seven years trying to find culpable people who could possibly respond to a judgment to try to compensate these people. I mean, if it were the Rolling Stones at the Hollywood Bowl, right. you got it right, right there. One quick thing to add to that, too, Chris, just, you know, taking apart from all the people that had done these horrible, I don't want to say horrible, but all these mistakes that came together. When you see that go up, you know, Jim and I are right there, second row. It goes up so symmetrically. That 15, 20 seconds when everyone thought it was part of the show literally meant life and death. Right? I, I can't tell you probably how many people. That's, that's just a terrifying thing to keep thinking of, that they thought it was part of the show. Well, so because yeah, because you can see it in the documentary, you and Jim are right in in basically the front row or two or three people yeah. back. Tell us oh, your experience. Wait, I gotta interject. I gotta interject. That's what they do, these guys, Mike and Jim. They when I was there, they were there, and they introduced, bring the band on, and then they jump off the stage and they get right in the front, and they're there for the whole show. They're true yep. 
rock fans. And, and you know, yep. you don't always see Eddie Trunk. I love you, Eddie. But Eddie, you know, he hangs out on the side stage for a while and he goes back to the hotel room. These are died in the world, world metalheads, true fans. And we saw just before Great White got on, it, it was uh, Dr. Metal from HJY who unfortunately passed that night. He's the one that introduced them. And then from there, you know, the rest is history. So, Mike, what did you see? Because you mentioned and, and and when you watch this video, it does go straight up and then it almost does what the old Wasp logo would do where it goes on the side yeah. and goes around. And it, it does look like it's part of the pyro. What did you think when you first saw that? And, and what was your reaction? How did how did you get out when so many didn't? Yeah, so that goes up and, you know, we're seeing it go up so symmetrically. And Jim and I gave, you know, we knew each other really well. We give the look like, wow, they're really going all out for this. You know, pyro, fire, and this small little roadhouse. We're rocking out even harder. This is, this is great to us. You know, like you said, we're, we're those hard hard rock fans right in the front row. And then it, it wasn't until Ty Longley started kind of looking back and he had a concerned look. And we kind of like, all right, something's not right. And then as soon as Jack Russell, I'll never forget those, fam those famous final words. Oh, something like, oh, well, that isn't good. And then it was just all hell broke loose from there. We got to the back of the club and I, you know, I say a decent amount of time. You know, my concept of time that night is all askew. Like it's not right. Just got to the back and, you know, got knocked down. The place was pitch black. I'd say in less than a minute. And just by the, the, the grace of God or some supernatural power, I was able to find a window and get out the window right to the left of the front door. If you're looking at the building, are you saying it's pitch black because of the smoke coming down? Yeah. From oh yeah. The roof? It, w it had to be pitch black in that building, I'd say, 30 to 45 seconds. It was just, you couldn't see anything. Well, then give us the scientific uh, uh, story of what happened, John. From a visual standpoint, you asked about why did it look like all the lights went out. You know, most everybody that made their escape said the same thing. They said within about a minute, all the lights went out. The lights didn't go out. The smoke layer, which was fed by this hydrocarbon-based foam was so perfectly opaque that as soon as you got a foot of it under the ceiling, the lights couldn't penetrate through it. So the effect to people below is the lights went out. Really terrifying when, you, when you've got this napalm raining on you and you're in darkness. And the crowd has fallen at the front door and stacked floor to ceiling so that you can't budge even if you want to. And like D mentioned, this this flammable substance is dripping. Like you mentioned, napalm. It's dripping from the ceiling on top of you, uh, which is also obviously burning burning you as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you were to design a trap for people, and I'm not saying that suggesting that anyone did, but if you were diabolical and you were to design the worst trap to burn people alive, this would have been it. Sadly. So, Chris, I, I came nowhere near the flames. I was burned by pure heat alone, just to give you an idea of how wow. hot it got in that building. Wow. I, I was yeah. out, thankfully, in time before the flames could get to that part of the building. It was it was the heat that, that burned so many people, not even the flames. Yeah. The, the heat flux was calculated in coming off that west wall at approximately 1,000 degrees within a minute and a half. It Mike, was, did you just when you you mentioned that you we saw you right at the front to get to the back? Did you just kind of beeline it, knowing that something is wrong, while other people were standing there still watching, or how did you get through the the mob? I really, I yeah. really can't answer that question with any any sort of logical response to right. this day. I, I mean, you just get back there, 
in your natural instinct, go out the way you came in. You didn't know there were there was an exit literally probably 10 feet in front of us where the band was coming in and out. Your just thought is to go out the way you came in. And I'm just we're going to the back. And but even when Jim and I are walking back, we're still looking at each other like, oh, hey, they, you know what? This, this is a show. We're here. We're patrons that are going to take care of us like they might delay the show, but no one's going to get hurt here. It, and then within it had to be 10, 15 seconds. You really knew how tragic this got instantly. There was also a side door, and this one blows my mind, uh, a, a side stage door yeah. where the, the door, was, you have to keep it closed when the, when the gig is going on. And some bouncer would not let people out the door, even though this fire was raging. You want to give us some more details on that, John? That yeah, there were, there were reliable witnesses who were turned away from the band door God. because they were not quote, with the band. It bespeaks terrible training on the part of the bouncers and on the part of the management of the club. It's tragic. Did that guy survive? The bouncer who was... Uh, yes. The, the main bouncer who was seen to turn people away survived, but his wife perished in the fire. Wow. Wow. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. I want to talk about the, the mechanics of making this movie, Dave, but one, one last thing, and, and D, let me know your thoughts. Obviously, Jack Russell comes you know, under blame um, for setting off the pyro, which I'm sure he had probably done 50, not he, let me rephrase that. There's a pyro guy who sets up, but Jack is obviously in charge and wants pyro at the gig probably 50 times before nothing goes wrong. D, did you ever use pyro in small places like that? I'm going to first I'll say something of just about uh, about the band Twisted, you know, playing bars for years, as you know, eight and a half years before the band broke, 10 years, really, with J.J. Right. And um, how many times we sat in one of those clubs, not, not, not that club, but others like it, joking that it was a fire trap, joking that if there was a fire, we would be toast and laughing, yeah. never imagining it would actually happen, but recognizing there's no way to get out of this place. Right. Bob, we're trapped yeah. so that's just just that realization but we knit twisted sister never used pyrotechnics because the band said i was the pyro <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> never had one explosion not one but that was the only reason they said we don't need it we got d so uh, <laughs> i can't speak to using pyro in <laughs> And I'll see you live. That's true. <laughs> here's a, a really crazy story. We had a gig that night at the Northern Lights in Albany, New York. And our guitar player, Rich Ward, used to have almost like what Ace Fraley used to have on the headstock of his guitar. It would shoot like a little sparkle rocket. And I vividly remember at that gig, it shot up and hit the ceiling and a little bit of a fire like this type of a deal. And I remember thinking, wow. That's pretty crazy. And later that night when we got to the hotel, we turned the TV on and saw Same what had night. happened. And we're like, like this could have been us. It yeah. could have been anybody, but it was great white. And they have to kind of uh, carry this for the rest of their career. Dave, mm -hmm. how was it for you 
talking to Jack Russell because he, he obviously a very devastating subject for him to talk about. Was he hesitant to do the interview? Uh, talk about how hard that was or easier it was to get him involved. So it's deeper than that because as when I went to John originally and we sat and discussed the possibility of this film and what the overall concept was and using the book as a foundation, one of the first things I said to him is that I can't do this without Jack Russell. And that sounds crazy. And I think John thought I was crazy and almost kicked me out. But what happened was the point is, is that the guest list as the name of the film, I found it difficult to create a film called the guest list without the actual person who created this guest list. So it was way more than an interview with Jack. It was embedding as we call it in documentary film where I'm going to be with this guy and his wife and his world and his band for several years. I mean, the, everybody you see in this film, we treated the same way. This is much more than going up and sticking cameras in people's faces and asking for, this is years of trust access to get the trust of Jack, just like the trust of the family. It was definitely a tightrope walk. And um, we spent a lot of time with Jack and I have the Jack Russell story. And I think one of the things I do want to mention quickly is early on, about five years ago, there was a story out there in the press that I think went to AP and Rolling Stone that this was Jack's movie. You know, Jack right. Russell was able now to come out and to have a film that he would have a platform to apologize. And yeah. I, I'm not blaming Jack. I, I think it was a misinterpretation, I believe, of maybe some of the things he says and maybe he should have said it some way or not. But it's not to blame anybody. But it's important to know that we spend so much time with these subjects that they feel like it's their movie, right? And I think maybe possibly in Jack's thinking, because we covered his childhood and his upbringing and his going to jail and his addiction and his rise to fame and his Grammy and so forth, that I think maybe there's a belief that, hey, this is the film, but that's what we do. That's how much we capture. Right. When, you, when you watch the movie, you realize it's not. So the answer to your question is uh, we spend a lot of time and we build a, a lot of trust to have the access. And with documentaries, as you know, it's about access and trust to get the stories that we got. David, in order to put this into perspective for Chris, can you tell him, uh, give him an idea of how many hours of footage you, you shot and what you had to boil it down to and some of the constraints for this format? Because I was fascinated by the process and the difficulty of some of the decisions you had to make. Yeah, we have about 350 hours. Wow. And we have a, an 88-minute yeah. broadcast version at the moment. But just to give you some perspective, when I go to Mass General Hospital with Joe Kinnan and I'm with Carrie, his wife and his daughter, Hadley, we spend the day because I want to experience and I want the viewer to experience what it's like for what Joe goes through on a monthly basis. He goes in and what he calls his tune-ups, where he goes in and has... Your listeners, Chris, you're saying Joe Kinnan is the last person to be pulled from the Station Nightclub. Yeah and the most severely burned of the yeah. uh, any of the victims. Amazing uh, yeah. Bible story. But so there's yeah. people that know Joe is sorry. Yeah, and you'll meet Joe and his family. But as an example, that's eight hours right there of just pure being a fly on the wall and experiencing Joe. So you can see how the footage can add up to this, this sure. incredible amount. Then there's the second part of trying to figure out what you're going to use and what this product is. So we start out with a concept of a four-part episodic mm -hmm. limited, limited series because we want to dive deep into the music industry for a whole episode, you know? Right. Uh, we can't do that with an 88 minute. So 
that's the reason is the, the potential of what we think we have. And we, we do have a lot. I, I had to leave out stories, as John knows, the Matthew Pickett story, which I won't even get into. But it has to do with some couple of kids like uh, like Jimmy and Mike, who bootlegged, brought a DAT player in that night. And uh, I, I won't lead to where that story goes, but there's a lot more. There's extended interviews. There's the details that John got into. I can't touch the details that John gets into in the book. It's not the right format. And it's just something I think the book and the doc go really well together because if you are interested in the detail that John can go into, you have the book. So it's a, it's a very nice package. My goal was to take that book, create a foundation and then put emotion and faces and music and visuals and all that stuff on top of it so that it's a cinematic sort of interpretation of the mm -hmm. book. But that was sort of the approach. Uh, first of all, I think it's great. I think, and I agree with you, David, that you to here have a well-rounded documentary telling the full story of before, during, and after. Uh, you got to hear that from that camp. And while Jack does get to explain himself and to speak, uh, it's not a, uh, David does not give him a pass. It's not. Yeah. He just, he's not passing judgment. So people, there are people there who hear that Jack's in it and are angry about that, even the idea that he's in it. No, this is just offering a much fuller understanding of the whole story. And yeah, it does humanize Jack. I, the fact is he's been demonized. The band's been demonized. My, I have a radio show called the House of Hair. And like many radio shows, uh, Great White was banned immediately. Really? Oh, banned. Yeah. Be banned. Wow. And, um, uh, HJY, one of my biggest uh, affiliates, they said, you play Jack, we love you, D, but you play Great White, and you're not putting you on the air. But I still yeah. spoke out, and I still said on the air to my listeners, I said, listen, we can't, you know, can't play with Great White. They did something incredibly stupid, irresponsible, call it what you want to, but they call it malicious and with ill intent uh, to, to hurt right. the thing. That not, you know, I toured with those guys, they would never do that in their wildest dreams. Yeah, and um, so and people, some people don't. You know, I, they're vilified. Like I said, people want to pay, make them the scapegoats, and they do hold blame. John, they hold responsibility for sure, but intentionally, what they did, no. So I thought it was great. David it gives them a voice. No. You get to hear the full story, but it's not a free pass by any means. I, I want to mention one other thing, and just to spin off a little bit on what D just said. That, that was one of my biggest challenges. And my first challenge was, was with John. Uh, Jack Russell in this film? No, I don't think so. And so when, I, when you see the stories and when you see the families who have participated and they wear their emotions on their sleeves and Jim Gahan and Sandy Arenas, the tattoo uh, owner's wife, um, Paula and Jane McLaughlin, these are people that I had to explain. I was very honest with both camps very honest from the mm -hmm. beginning and i they understood several people said no I, I i will not participate in this film if that if that person really is in it and yeah. um and and i understand yeah. that and i think all of us here today can understand and respect people's decisions so i i wanted to pick there's a hundred stories there's actually 400 stories right but mm -hmm. there's i had to only pick a few and those stories were personal to me. You know, Mike and Jimmy's story was very personal. I could relate to being a young guy who wanted to be in the industry and one of my friends doesn't make it out. One of them. So 
these are stories that I could relate to, but I told everybody going in that Jack Russell is going to be a principal story thread in this film. And there's a reason for that. And you have to trust me. And mm-hmm. if you don't, I respect you and you, it's okay if you don't participate. And so there was a lot of that. I just want to just you know, Jack, I, I don't think the film would have been as, as, as well-rounded and as good without Jack in it. So right. I, I totally give you credit for that. What were you going to say, Mike? I've said since February 21st, 2003, that I don't absolve Jack of what he did that night. He certainly hasn't done himself any favors over the years. And I respect everybody's opinions, but I'll always view Jack in a different light because of what he gave two young kids earlier on that night. And I've kind of maintained that. And Dave was right up front with what Jack's involvement was going to be. And, and I knew that going into it. So and I've always maintained putting, my opinion. Putting fans on the, uh, I disagree with you. I agree with you. Putting fans on your guest list as you yeah. walk around is the coolest thing. I do it all the time. Right. And, yeah. and these people were calling home. I'm on the lead singer's guest list. I'm like, yes, I'm Jack. Yep. I mean, it was an honor. You should have you know, seen us that night. We were we were, we were stoked. You know, not bands do that, you know, because they love their fans, not because they want to invite them to a, a you know, arbitrage or something like that. You know, right. I mean, right, Mike. How, how does it feel for you to to watch the movie, to think about this? And obviously, I mean, for you mentioned you were 19 years old. This was almost 20 years ago, almost half your life ago. Yet you're always connected yep. to it. I mean, you and I became friends because of it. It's almost like what you're known for in some ways, how does yeah. it feel for you all these years later? And then to see the documentary and kind of revisit this time and time again. Yeah. So, you know, I'd said over the years, cause obviously the first couple of years after it happened, you, you got the press interviews left and right. It, it's still fresh in people's minds. And Dave probably contacted me seven years ago. I want to six, seven years ago. So, you know, I'm thinking, all right, all these years later, what's this about? So I go into it with an open mind. And when he kind of gave me the concept of it is, you know, we're so far removed now from all the legal proceedings, all the forensic stuff, everything that was in mainstream media. Now we want to peel these layers back and and show the human element, the human aspect. I I was sold. And I got to tell you, I've said over the years, too, that watching news footage or any kind of other documentary or other stories never really bothered me because you're there that night. You saw the worst of it. But after you watch, after I watched this doc, it, I, I told Dave that night, I got goosebumps leaving that. It just, it brought a whole different element that I hadn't seen before, even having been so involved with it. So it, it was, it, it really struck an emotional chord watching it. And I thought it was, I thought it was extraordinary. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. John, let's talk a little bit about the legal ramifications. Mike mentioned it. I know, obviously, with 100 deaths and 400 people in there, talk about all of the legal proceedings and all the different lawsuits. And then also, too, who was to blame? Because there wasn't a lot of jail time handed out to the to the perpetrators of this. As you might imagine, Chris, with a state the size of Rhode Island, 100 deaths, hundreds of injuries, people were looking for heads to roll. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they're looking for somebody to blame and somebody to take the fall and looking for that from a criminal standpoint. A grand jury was convened 
and they looked at the evidence, and only three indictments issued from that grand jury. And those three indictments were Dan Beakley, the great white road manager who physically hooked up the pyro, uh, and the two brothers who owned the club, the Derdarian brothers, Michael and Jeffrey. Interestingly, uh, Jack Russell was not indicted, and he was the guy whose decision it was to use the illegal pyro. You know, but no, they wanted the guy that physically hooked it up. And no indictment of the fire inspector who allowed the solid That's amazing. That's insane to be Unbelievable. on the walls. Talk about, talk about this fire inspector before you continue, John and David, because this guy, it's so ridiculous what he did and didn't do, which enabled this fire to happen. The fire inspector in West Warwick, Rhode Island, is both a local employee and he's an employee of the state. So he kind of wears both hats. And it was his job to do periodic inspections of this place of public assembly. For three years running, he, for two out of three years, he personally, one out of the three years, one of his people inspected the station and completely overlooked the 900 square feet of flammable foam covering the whole west end of the club and the ceiling over the stage. We don't know why he cited other much more minor problems. One of the problems he cited was an exit door that was double. It opened both inward and outward, and that was a code violation. So he cited that. What he didn't cite was the foam that was glued to the inside of that door. So it was very hard to claim, which he did under oath in the grand jury, that I never saw the foam. You know, not very credible. In any event, one of the reasons why he probably was not indicted is there is a statute in Rhode Island that provides for immunity of the fire marshal for acts or omissions undertaken without malice and in good faith. Well, you know, as civil attorneys, and I'm not a criminal attorney, but we're on the civil side, when we look at somebody who designates an entire building standing room, which is not code compliant, and allows this stuff to be on the walls, that's not what you think of as good faith performance of mm-hmm. his duties. So from a civil standpoint, we were not dissuaded by the immunity statute. On the criminal side, the attorney general may have not sought an indictment because of that immunity statute, not wanting to indict somebody and then have him get off on a technicality. Right. The upshot of the criminal prosecutions, those three that you mentioned, Chris, are, was very little jail time, if you will. Dan Beakley served 16 months. That's the fellow who physically lit off the pyro. Uh, Michael Derdarian served 24 months, and Jeff Derdarian, who was there the night of the fire, served no jail time as part of his plea. It was a shock and a slap in the face to a lot of the people in Rhode Island. But what the judge had to explain to people is that sentencing in a criminal matter turns on culpability. Was there intentional wrongdoing? Was there malice? Was there bad faith? And as Dee pointed out, as tragic as this was, its end result was wholly unexpected and not intended by anyone. It was just a result of, if you will, criminal carelessness. So that was the resolution of the criminal matters. And it was not to many people's satisfaction. We then proceeded to file civil lawsuits 
many of them that became consolidated against people that were not only clearly responsible for the fire, but some more attenuated defendants like product manufacturers who, while their negligence may not have been as clear as the band or the club owners, at least they had the ability to respond to a judgment. They had assets. And the upshot of that seven years of litigation was a civil settlement with all the combined defendants of $176 million, which then was parceled out among the families per the of a special master who was appointed by the federal court. Very complicated formula for valuing death cases and injury cases. Mike, did you get a settlement from, from that? I did, yeah. Gotcha. So, so anybody that survived the fire got a settlement, and then the families of the people who passed away got a, a right. bigger settlement or, or the same, or was it divided equally? It, it depends. Uh, it was not divided equally. It was divided as tort law tends to look at it. That is, it treats death cases as if the person had survived and went on to earn their normal amount of earnings. In injuries, we were having the hardest time trying to come up with a formula that would try to compare, say, Mike's injury with Joe Kinnon's injury. Mm -hmm. How do you ever do that? Right. And And we started out with a complicated formula by percentage of body area that's burned and the degree of the burns and it was simply unworkable so what we finally came to was a method whereby we took a dollar of medical care and had that translate into a point system so to roughly equate what spent on a person's medical treatment with the severity of their injury not perfect but it created a point yeah. system that then the special master used to allocate that money. You know, my perspective of all that, like, like John, like you said, no system was perfect. I was just lucky enough and fortunate enough that I was, I was a college kid, you know, still living with my parents at the time. I didn't have a family. I didn't have anyone to support. So I, it, it, that part didn't matter to me. Get the people the money they need quick. Cause some people lost everything financially. Right. Yeah. And some just heartbreaking stories, Dave, that, that you mentioned you had to pick some of the, you know, some some of the more moving ones are the ones that, that meant something to you. And and, and they're, they're, talk about some of those because there was the, the married couple. I didn't realize until you halfway through the story that you were telling that both of them passed away in it. Uh, Joe Kinnon, like you mentioned, just horribly burned to where he looks like something in a movie, which people probably can't even believe you can actually survive this way. But then he gets married basically because of his injuries and has a daughter and there's a lot of uplifting stories in this as well. Yeah, there is. And I think what I did is because of my situation with my one-year-old and three-year-old, I think for a few years, I put myself in that club. And uh, before I did anything, you know, from a film standpoint, um, what is it like to be Mike to to actually get out of that club? Like you were asking Chris, uh, what is it like to be Jimmy? Like what did he go through? Matthew Pickett, um, what is it like to be Joe? Like he was buried under bodies and he was on fire for 11 minutes, I think. I mean, so I, I, I was, it's so disturbing to me to, to put yourself. And so my job, I felt, was not, not graphically, as you see in the film, it's, it's, you know, it's for television, but try to give the viewer some feeling of what it's like to be Joe, what it's like to be Mike, what it's like to be Jimmy. What it's like to be Paula and Jay, you know, family members, Mm -hmm. Jimmy's father, 
you know, Mike's best yep. friend's father. I mean, I, I just, it's so emotional, you know? And um, that was really the approach. So picking the stories just were things after I came out of that mode of, you know, Oh my God, how can, how can I, you know, what is it like to be these people? Then it was personal. Then it was music. You know, to me, music was the foundation for this film, right? These people yeah. were so passionate. Why would they there in the first place? Why would you go to the friggin' station, you know, to listen to great mm. white? Well, there's a reason. I mean, this genre of music, I mean, any music, I know D will argue with me on this. I know it can happen to anyone, any part of rock and roll, but the fans in this particular genre, incredibly passionate. So those are the stories that I picked, you know, for that reason, because they had to mean something to me. I, there's so many stories mm -hmm. that fall on the floor, but um, we had to try to, it's, otherwise the film would be watered down. So we just want to give you right. symbols of what you don't see. You kind of hit on it with one of the girls who, um, women, not girls, women who was spit on, uh, who survived. Mike, what is a survivor's guilt like? Having got out the window, watched those people piled up in the doorway. I'm, I'm sorry to be so graphic. This is not a oh, hell, by the way, but this is a necessary documentary for everybody to watch. So it never, you know, when I say if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. You know, we can't yep. allow anything like this to ever happen again. But what is the aftermath for someone who survives and witnesses all that? What's that like to you? It, it weighs on you. It, it's it's a heavy burden to carry. I know the old saying is time heals all wounds. That's certainly true. But trust me, it, it takes a lot of time to get yourself over the fact, why him and not me? Well, you know, right. why didn't we both go? It's just, you know, are, are people mad at me because I got to live and, and, and he didn't? And I, and I think a lot of people felt that way. It, it's a heavy burden to carry, especially as a kid in college where you're not supposed to be thinking of things like that. Right, exactly. You're supposed to, you know, be partying and having the time of your life. And then this happens at such a young age. It was tough for a really long time. I went through some I went through some pretty dark years, but time heals all wounds. And, and I, I say this all the time, too. Besides my parents, Jimmy's parents couldn't have been any more gracious to me. So once I knew, like, you know, I had their support and they said everything happens for a reason, that just made it all the all the more easier to get through this. But D, it, it weighs on you. There's, there's no other way to put it. It just it sucks. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Mike, is there like, a, um, did you, I don't even know how you even say this. Did you ever have like meetings with the other survivors or any kind of gathering uh, to a mutual support group sort of thing? Yeah. And actually this kind of speaks back to earlier on in the, in the footage when we were talking about when, um, you know, the mainstream media and the, those mainstream rock acts really weren't there to help. Um, the station family fund got founded. I want to say that first year, either 03 or 04, that's what that benefit concert was for in 2008. And it brought us all together and it, it just really made us all feel like there, there is a family outside of this that we can kind of all console each other and, and be with each other, ran great events to raise money, bring awareness to. So that's where I found the most comfort. Chris is like, 
being with other people that were there that night that can kind of mm. share in the grief and share in what happened. And then you start developing the friendship even kind of outside of that, which makes it a lot easier too. So there was a lot of support over the years from a lot of different people. The music healing part, I just want to touch on, like yeah. I, I didn't approach D until late in the game. Like we were, I mean, as you can imagine, there's so many layers of this. And I think he was kind of pissed at me probably like, how, why did you wait so long? Like, didn't anybody contact me about this? And it wasn't, it was certainly, it wasn't intentional. It was just, uh, we had so much going on. But when I look at that scene, which is act seven, actually the whole act of what D tells the story, it's just one of the best to me, because I think that's the fundamental thing is that how music can bring people together, ironically, in this tragic yep. way, and also be one of the most incredible methods of healing. Uh, even even to the families, like the message to me from Paula and Sandy, who you'll meet in the film, is you know, Sandy always says to me, "Oh, Deep Purple and Black Sabbath, they just came on back to back on the radio." I, that's God talking. To me. Mm-hmm. And she believed yeah. it. I mean, that's it. And um, so you know, if if I didn't include that Act Seven, which, which D drives the whole story, uh, and then that goes into Act Eight, which is sort of a little culmination at the end about you know how important music is. Uh, that that to me, I don't want to say that's what the film's about, but it's it's one of the the key themes that mm-hmm. I, I think is why this will be successful. I'll never forget what Jimmy's mother said to me at his wake. Make sure you keep that radio show going. So that just spoke a lot to me right there. That that mm. music tore people apart that night, but it also brought them back together. So that's such a huge huge element of this. Yeah, it's great too. I mean, to, to, I mean that they didn't not that they would, but they didn't blame you or, or show you any. Right. Any type of a different attitude because you made it and their son didn't, you know? Right. Yeah. Do you still have the show, the radio show? No, that was the college years. And I, I kind of did a run again in like 2013, 2014. And then uh, just it just kind of panned out, gotcha. unfortunately. Because uh. in the documentary, you're actually in a studio. It looks like you're doing a radio show. That's what I was wondering. So what actually what we did is about a year after the fire happened, at the time, one of the reasons we were actually doing all these interviews is we had applied for a wattage increase from the FCC. So our public relations director at school at the time had said, you know, hey, try to get the radio station on the map, try to do more promotional events, interview artists. So that's one of the I mean, we were fans anyway. It didn't matter. That's one of the reasons we were there that night is try to get WNRC on the map. Um, about a year later, we opened up a brand new state of the art studio dedicated to Jim. But in the dock, we actually shot a lot of scenes in the original studio that Jim and I had first broadcast out of starting in 2002, which I always joke look more like a music museum rather than a studio just because the equipment was probably from the 60s. But we <laughs> we we made it work. We, we did what we could to, to follow our dream. I, I joke too, like playing interviews back on the air, Chris. Um, we'd have like our little Casio tape recorder and just put the microphone right to the speaker to broadcast <laughs> it over. We had, we had, and it, right. That's what we did. And, you know, we're, we're kind of BSing these artists that, you know, we've got state of the art equipment that we're lying through our teeth. We're just trying, mm. we're just trying to chase a dream. I didn't believe that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little kids going, yeah, we're uh, DJs and uh, yeah. <laughs> we're Do at you- Tri-State yeah, we all did. Yeah. I mean, you probably have the same equipment that you had, Mike. It never changes. Yeah. It's the same. You mentioned it at the beginning, but just going a little bit more detail about the benefit show, because you mentioned at first and I thought it, it was great that you admitted to this at first where you were like, uh, you mentioned Troy Lakata, the drummer of Tesla approached you about this and you weren't into it at first. Yeah. Well, first of all, I got to say is 
Tesla, 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 Troy Lakata, Troy Lakata, Troy Lakata. These guys were doing small events for the victims. They yeah. they were so there um, yeah. for those people. And Troy reached out to me. Now, remember I said after the article in Rolling Stone, I made an attempt to put something major together. Because, you know, when I say this in the doc, it's $75,000 a day for the intensive care burn ward per person. $75,000 a day. And these guys were having, no offense, uh, spaghetti dinners. I mean, you know, how could you? So I wanted to do something big, and I just ran into, like I said, closed doors, slammed doors, uh, walls. And, and and I gave up, you know, when I left. And then Troy calls me, and um, he says, we're doing, a, a, we're doing an event. And he starts listening. I said, well, what do you got? And he starts listening. And I'm not going to name names. But they were the second-tier people, third-tier. And, and everybody's heart was incredibly in the right place, everybody who performed. But I said, Troy, this, what are you going to do with that lineup? And Twisted Sister, that's not going to change the game. And I said, 75,000. said that number. That just rang in my head. And I said, and, and, and I'm discouraging him from trying to do something and – he says these words, he's a, he's a Christian man, he's a country good man. He said, D, somebody has to do something. Mm, yeah. And it just shook me. I'm like, what am I doing, man? You know, so I said, okay, yeah. I mean, and I just started pound, working the phones again uh, and doing the best I could to try and create something. I don't know if you're aware, D, that Tesla had a personal connection to the fire and, and one of the deceased one of the uh, young men killed in the fire had worked as a roadie for oh. Tesla. Oh, no, that's right. Yeah. That's that the connection. So, yeah. So when you finally, you finally put the show together, you mentioned that some bands didn't come back and some bands didn't call you back. I mean, watching it, I think it was on VH1. It seemed, was it a huge success and did well, it make a difference? All, yeah. Well, first of all, VH1, I contacted them and they, it turned out that some of the producers over there, lived in that town, lived in that area, had friends who were at the fire. So they were like, yes. So that was a big thing to get that. We had the Providence, Providence Civic Center, a great venue. Um, so that was a great thing. But now we're trying to get acts to fill that place. And it's, and not, and look, I'm going to be out looking, Twisted Sister, I'm, I'm, it's not going to fill the arena by itself. We'll not do that. It was yeah. a time, but not now. You know, and that's, that's just the truth. And I knew that, I'm being honest with myself. Um, and I'm running, I told you, Slam Doors, Springsteen, Bon Jovi, Aerosmith, close, 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 close. And I was doing a reality show at that time called Gone Country. Uh, John Richards, the host, and I was down doing promos. And I was just talking in passing to John about what I was dealing with. And John goes, we'll come. And I was like, what? And he goes, dude, this could have been a honky tonk. This isn't about hair metal. This, isn't about, this could have been any club in any town. Right. And yeah, but it's in Rhode Island. He goes, oh, I'll get a plane. And me, Gresham, Dirks Bentley, who was name I couldn't remember, David. During, yeah. during, <laughs> he's like a huge star, too. They flew up. And now the whole the, the event was taken, took, took a different shape. You had country artists and you had yep. hair metal artists. But then, you know, uh, then what's that? Aaron Lewis from Stain showed up. And, and, yep. and Bob Schultz, let's. Tom Schultz not only played, he paid the play. He gave 10 grand uh, to the cause. I mean, it was, was just such a magnanimous gesture. And it was nice to see some of the local people standing up. But so many people said after the fact, said, you know, 
figures. We got to get a this this you know Rhode Island Boston you know that connection. We got to get a guy from New York and a guy from right. I'm not sure where he's from Arkansas wherever <laughs> to come help us out. Like yeah. the, the people, the local musicians, all those great local Boston bands. And again, Aaron Lewis was there. Tom Schultz was there. Bravo, credit where credit's due. But still, you guys are the ones to light a fire. Now, we raised a few hundred thousand dollars. Everybody, and it was a great turnout. It was broadcast on VH1. But I'm walking, going home, going, so, oh, I got to tell you a side story, dude. You're going to love this side story. Okay? <laughs> Who's in attendance? Mick Foley. Now, Mick Just going to say that. <laughs> most charitable person in the world. Mick, yep. I, Mick knows him through the show. Doesn't tell me. He drives to... Rhode Island, he walks up by himself, to buys a ticket, goes in and sits in the nosebleeds. <laughs> and he's yep. sitting there and watching the show, and people around him are freaking out. And somebody, one of the producers, come back and says, There's some guy out there. Every time they put a camera on him, the place goes crazy. That's <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. Nick Foley. He <laughs> said, well, get him down here. We need him on stage. <laughs> so we just go up and draw Mick that. But that's oh my god, what a what a guy, Mick. Yeah, just incredible. Yeah. But so we raised a few hundred thousand dollars, and you know, and, and I'm just going seventy five thousand dollars. Okay, do the math. That's four days, right? We have four days in the intensive burn to pay for, for one that. guy. One guy. One guy. You know, and 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 then years later, and I hope John will attest to this. I get a call from from Todd. What's Todd's last name? Station Family Fund, the guy who ended uh, up. Ted King. King. Todd King. Todd King. Okay. He says, D, we're closing the Station Family Fund. And I yep. was like, why? He said, because we don't need it anymore. I said, what happened? He said, he said, the event, he said, now he, this was his words, not mine, John. He said, shamed the attention we got. The lawyers, not you, John, the lawyers, <laughs> insurance companies, the judges, Everybody to finally take action because it was gridlocked for seven years, as John said, getting these people to pay out and pay up. And everybody paid up. And now money was getting to the people, to the victims, to the families, and we're closing the fund. Wow. Uh, yep. and, uh, and so it was, you know, I remember in, in Troy's words, somebody's got to do something. It wasn't necessarily the event itself, but the, the ripple effect yeah. of it. Yeah. Cause help things to happen and cause because John was working very hard. I don't want to take anything away from you, John. How hard you worked on this thing on these with these people, uh, but it helped. And uh, so you never know. You never know. That's right. Last few questions for you guys, John. Could something like this? I mean, would something like this? Could something like this ever happen again? Because as you mentioned, there were so many factors there. Just a horrible situation. Have we learned from this when you're talking about venues and, and safety codes and fire codes and everything? It's not only can it happen, but it has happened several times in several places since, yeah. sadly. We are very slow learners when it comes to things like this. Uh, a lot of states tightened their fire codes. Massachusetts did. Rhode Island did. And as I travel around the country and I present to event safety groups, really First-rate groups like uh, the ESA, the Event Safety Alliance, these groups gather the gorillas of the industry. We're talking about Burning Man and people who organize gigantic stuff. We're very conscious. The, their safety manuals are this thick. I've, I've seen their binders. Wow, yeah. they, they anticipate every possible situation. It's still the rundown roadhouses that are running on a shoestring 
better the hazardous places to be. But when you say, can it happen again? In the years since the station fire, there have been pyro-ignited nightclub fires and club fires in Russia, Thailand, Brazil. Fortunately, no big venues in the United States. But I'd like to think that between the story getting out that David tells so well in the film and in the book and my presentation engagements, I tell the firefighters and the building inspectors, you got a funny job because if you do your job really well and it prevents the next station nightclub fire, nobody will know it. But if you don't do it well and the next station fire happens on your watch, you'll never be able to forget it. Mm -hmm. And people come away kind of chastened. And I'd like to think that it's had some effect, not only on the people who run the concerts, but on your fans, the concert goers, so that when they attend an event, the first thing they do is check for the nearest exit. And they talk to their friends and they say, if something bad goes down, that's the place we're going. We're not hesitating to get our coats or our drinks. We're the first ones out. That kind of consciousness and the willingness to disengage with the performance and not think it's all part of the performance, I think has helped people since the station fire. David, what was uh, the hardest part about making this documentary and what was your favorite part about making the documentary? There was just so many pieces that had to come together that I honestly never thought would come together. It, it almost fell apart probably a half a dozen times. I mean, this was not going to get made several times. And people were like, why this take so long? Why this take so long? So the hardest part was just the challenges of uh, relationships, building relationships, uh, the trust of everyone that you see on that screen. I mean, that's a lot of trust that it took time to build a trust. Even D, like, um, who's this guy approaching us? And what, you know, John sitting down at lunch going, okay, let me get this straight. You, you, Jack Russell's going to be in this document, you know. So it was just that that took a lot of time. So the challenges was just how do you get all these pieces to fall in place? You know, the families and the belief and the trust right. and John's expertise and D in the music community. And I think the most enjoyable thing is just to see the text messages and the emails and the personal phone calls. And they come, they come to my house and I, you know, Joe and Carrie and Paula, you know, we're all friends now. And the relationships that I built and the friendships that I built with these people, I mean, that you can't put a price on that. So just to hear them, Jim Gahan sends a little email. He says, thank you so much for doing this film because now people will finally know the shadow and the horror that we've lived with. And I still continue to live with every day. So mm-hmm. it's re- it was very hard, but yeah, it was a journey for me as well. Mike, uh, last question for you. What's your yeah. uh, favorite memory of, of, of Jim? And, and what would you like people to know about him that they might not find out in the documentary? Oh, man. I think it was really just the interviews we did prior to it. Just, you know, two young kids trying to chase a dream. I remember one, one quick story. The best thing about Jim is, you know, in college, I tried to be an aspiring singer and guitarist. That did not really pan out too well for me. So school used to have like this talent show once a, once a semester or so. So I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to play poison. Every rose has its thorn in this talent show. Basic, you know, three, four chord progression. Like, you know, you really can't screw that song. One chord, actually. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) You're right. You're right. It it might be. I had this discussion with C.C. DeVille. I said, dude, I'm not ready to do one chord. Some people like hamburger. That's that's true. (laughs) 
So um, we advertise it and I'm not expecting anybody to come and, you know, cheer, whatever. And Jim brought a group of about 15, 20 people from like our dorm, our floor. And even though I was absolutely horrid up there, he just still got up there, cheered and just had everyone else cheer. So that, that's just the type of friend that he was. And that, that's what I want everyone to know about him. And that's what I think everybody is going to know about him once they see this. And I, David just captured it perfectly. Do you feel that each day of your life you want to live up to the standards of Jim to honor honor yeah. him? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He uh you know he he said it even as a 21-year-old kid that you know he'd he'd be very happy just making a very, you know, smaller salary in his life growing up. He just, you know, he said do what makes you happy. I remember I showed him a picture one time I I got to meet Vince Neal the, the year before we got to college and I was so stoked and he's like, you know, they're just you know, they're just people like you and us like he just had a different grounded approach to everything. And he just made you appreciate your life. So I just, I try to see, you know, what would Jim do is, is the question I find myself asking a lot. The last thing, take it home for us, man. Like it's interesting. You always, since, since I first started listening to Twisted Sister preach about the power of rock and roll. And obviously this horrific incident happens, hundred people pass away, but rock and roll, it really, the power of rock and roll brought these people's stories to life. And I think got us all very interested in behind these people because they're us. It could have been me. It could have been you when you were a kid or anybody here watching. Am I getting a little bit sappy here or did rock and roll kind of, because it was rock and roll that, that, that started this fire, no pun intended. It did it, did it work to bring us together a little bit here? You know, I think that the, uh, the fans, the music fan, and and first, like yourself, Chris, first and foremost, I'm a fan. No different than Mike working at the college radio station, and and one dream about being a rock star. I, you know, I just I got luckier, and uh, you know, but the fact of the matter is, I, as a fan, I identified what was going on, and I think people were much more horrified and mortified as people. I was really disappointed in the music industry, as I said, and and this and the closed yeah. doors. And again, this is this is sort of the corporate mentality, never talking to management, not talking to the artists. Um, yep. But I think that, yeah, you know, when we got out there and we did the benefit thing, and it was so great. Again, John Rich, Fashion Wilson, Dirks Bentley, just mentioned that there were country artists there joined us and stood with us. And I say it in that you saw in the documentary, this isn't a hair, hair metal problem. This isn't a music problem. This is a people problem that we have here. Yep. And we're all people. So... The music unified us. It is the reason why people got hurt. And it's also what has healed the people as well uh, through the music. The one thing you know, I tell people when you're watching, it's just, and again, this goes off your question, but when you're watching this thing, as hard as it is to do, think about the 100 dead. Think about the more than 200 injured. Think about the hundreds and hundreds of family members and friends affected their lives affected by these deaths by these major injuries by what they've gone through and the, the 65 kids who lost one or both parents now they're 19 years older now they're adults having families without those grandparents for their kids i mean this is just it, it this resonates through the ages this is not gonna this is never gonna go away and um this is, not, again, not a happy, feel-good documentary. This is just a cold reality check. And one of them, too, you know, you talk about, I'm so glad to hear those things you said about the fire marshals and things like that, John. But let's go to the concert promoters and club owners. If you think they've got your best interests at heart, they do not. To a man and woman, it's about how many bodies they can move through and how much money they can make. 
And that's why Woodstock 3 was the horrific tragedy that right. it was. Because there was money-hungry people who just cared more about the bottom line than they cared about safety and the well-being of the people attending. The Travis Scott uh, situation, that's not a fire, but that shouldn't have happened. Right. That shouldn't have happened. Yeah. There are people who are there to decide, well, this is too overcrowded, or this isn't being, we're not protecting the people here. And yeah. as long as we allow these people, these promoters and these industry people, these big dogs, to make callous decisions on their behalf, not with our best interest, we're going to continue to have tragedies. I used to get asked all the time, are you going to start, keep going to concerts? Yes, the music should never suffer. And that's what Jim would have wanted. We've got to be vigilant. And John, it's awesome that you do the work you're doing, spreading the word. David, uh, you took the weight of the world on your shoulders. I'm sorry, I have a lot involved with these guys now. Uh, <laughs> And, 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 you know, and the things that they, the footage you look through, you can't forget these images. No. And people, you don't want, if you want to, start, you don't want to look online to see images from that fire because they are truly yeah. disturbing. You can't not see them. Yeah. This isn't a plug for D. I pretend he's not here, but um, the, new music, <laughs> the, the, the new music video for his single stand will be out. But we, we, it was important to him to, that we craft the, the visuals of the story and make the music video sort of surrounding this story. So when you see it, it's very powerful, but I wanted to bring it up only for one reason is when he talked about the magnitude, one thing he commented when we were talking last week, editing was how can we show the magnitude? We're not showing the magnitude. I only have a few stories in the doc. And I said, I, you know, there's a rose, a big rose flower that says a hundred, 100, one zero zero. And it's yeah. just this amazing photograph. And, there's not much more you can do. Otherwise, you water down, you thin, you thin down the story too much. So a few stories, 100, you back up and you let people do their own research, like you were saying. But uh, I know the magnitude was a very difficult thing to try to attack here. And, uh, you know, that's that's what we can do in 88 minutes. You know? Well, you guys did a great job. And, and I thank all of you for being here today. Great chat and a great documentary. So we appreciate it, dudes. Hi, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Chris. Thank you for taking the time to talk about something that's not a happy, good, feel good thing, you know. But it's important. And, and like I said, you guys yeah. did a great job today talking about it. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks guys. Thanks to David, John, D, and Mike. And don't forget the documentary is called America's Deadliest Rock Concert, The Guest List. Uh, you can see an encore airing once again this Sunday, February 27th at 3 p.m. Eastern on Reels. Or you can go to reels.com for information on how you can watch it on demand. 